No. So, Irenaeus says uh, lifetime is roughly 130 to 202 AD. He's a bridge. His life kind of as extends most of the second century, and he's a bridge between the apostolic fathers whom we were talking about. Um, in the first class, we did Ignatius of Antioch, who was someone, uh, a bishop during the time of the apostles, who was going to be martyred in 117 and who visited with uh, Polycarp, the disciple of St. John. So the Apostolic Fathers um, are kind of at the beginning of the century. And Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna here in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. By the way, this is supposed to be Turkey, Greece, Italy, France, or um, approximation of. And uh, Irenaeus was born and grew up in Smyrna under Bishop Polycarp. And so Irenaeus is the disciple of the disciple of St. John the Evangelist. And so in that sense, he is a link, you know, right back in a way to the New Testament times. But during the course of his life, uh, he goes, appears to live in Rome for a period and definitely visits Rome uh, at some point, then becomes a priest up in the uh, city of Lyon here in France and later a bishop going through to the uh, to, to the end of the second century. During this time, um, this is the period of the early persecutions with the emperors. The apologist that we talked about in the last class was uh, St. Justin, living here in Rome. The apologists were the educated uh, philosophers who, upon becoming Christian, tried to use their their education as a way of uh, convincing the Roman world to accept Christianity and not to persecute the church. The whole period of the apologists, which uh, kind of runs from about, um, well, the late 130s to to the 170s is kind of the high joint, although there are apologists, authors who who are apologists, meaning uh, defending of the church, you know, afterwards. But the the main period of the apologists is sort of right in the middle of, of Irenaeus's life. There you have the apologists. And then um, towards the end of his life, well, also a, another thing that happens during his life is the uh, breakout of the Montanist heresy in Asia Minor that will ultimately uh, spread ultimately end up with Tertullian in North Africa. So this this occurs, uh, Montanus lived about 156 to the 170s, and Tertullian didn't become Montanus until two, after 200. But uh, So the, the, the whole Montanus uh, phenomenon or sect uh, occurs during this time. And by the end of Irenaeus's life, we have the beginnings of the, the uh, school of Alexandria that becomes very famous for uh, Christian philosophy and Christian exegesis, Alexandria being down here in Egypt. So it was a, the, probably the largest city of the day, if maybe the second, if Rome was bigger at some point. But, but the uh, rise of, of Christian philosophy under uh, Clement of uh, Alexandria and Origen comes kind of at the end. They, uh, they are they are contemporaries of Irenaeus in his old age. So Irenaeus' life spans, you know, in a sense what we would think of in a way as many distinct phases of early Christian history. But what he kind of brings through that is this sense of continuity with the apostles and also um, a defense of the Christian faith because the uh, period is also the period of the the, uh, flourishing of the doctrines of Gnosticism. Gnosticism began in uh, Iranian dualism. It's it's non-Christian in its origins. 
but it was adopted by uh, first uh, Simon Magus, the Samaritan, and others in, in Judaism uh, who adopted Gnostic teachings, and then those were being applied to Christianity. And then in the time of Irenaeus, specifically, these are um, people who are Christians, who are identifying themselves as Christians, in some cases Christian priests, and bringing, trying to bring Gnosticism within the church. And this is uh, kind of the major theme of Irenaeus's life, is that he's trying to defend Christianity from the infiltration of Gnostic doctrine. Now, uh, in case you don't remember what Gnostic doctrine is, Gnosticism is essentially based on kind of dualism of spirit versus matter. And spirit is good and matter is bad. So, in the case of a, a applying this to Christianity, they saw, the Gnostics saw in Christ the victory of the spirit, spiritual true God who rejected this world and um, was leading people to union with the, the uh, unknown God, the Father, who is a spirit. So they saw the spiritual God as the God of the New Testament, and the matter they saw as a, re, as a result of the fall of the angels. And so therefore the Old Testament God is either uh, identified with the devil or as a lower, with the, in the Platonic philosophy, what's something known as the demiurge. Some of the Gnostics do that. But so the Old Testament is the religion of the demiurge or the religion of the false, of the uh, fallen angels who are opposing God. Why is that? Because the God of the Old Testament creates the material universe. And since the creation of the material universe is, is the, is a, is the fall, result of the fall of the angels and is a, is a sin, um, Therefore, it's to be rejected. Yes. Oh well, it was something the Greek philosophers, uh, Plato particularly, thought of as a way. And he was the force that uh, mediated between the ideal, um, the forms, the ideal essences of things, and their realities in the in the material world, which because matter is is malleable and corrupt, but so the demiurge was the thing which kept imprinting malleable matter with the, with the forms. So it's not, in, in, in Plato, it's not a particularly evil thing, but, uh, and so there's, I guess, uh, within Gnosticism, there was the question of whether to identify the Old Testament God as evil or sort of neutral. But the <coughs> result of this, uh, let's say, application of Gnostic principles to Christianity was to mint that, well, you reject the Old Testament because the Old Testament is part of the, you know, the this material creator God. The Christ um, is he's spiritual, therefore he's not material, therefore the nativity of Christ is not real, that he's a, sometimes, uh, in the authors that will talk about the, uh, Valentinus spoke of him as uh, passing through Mary as as water through a tube, meaning that he came he came into this world through Mary, but that he didn't uh, receive any of the human nature from her, but rather he was a spiritual being. So Christ, the, uh, the Gnostics saw Christ as uh, spiritual, as a spirit, and therefore. The crucifixion as unreal, therefore no true resurrection because there's no flesh. And then, if you take that further, uh, they did not, you know, the Eucharist is, is not uh, the body and blood of Christ because Christ had no body or blood. And yeah, so and no, no, and therefore also for us, uh, there's no desire for resurrection either. And the. Um, also, that it leads to a rejection of marriage because the goal of the Gnostic is, well, the fall of the angels was that the that the souls uh, put.
portions of the spiritual world became trapped in the material world. So therefore, marriage, by producing children, perpetuates this um, terrible thing. So you're, as a Gnostic, you're trying to escape from the material world. And so they was usually reject marriage. Uh, either in, in the early Gnostics, you have rejection of marriage in favor of immorality. Um, in the ones that uh, Irenaeus will be dealing with in this period, the uh, there's a, a start to be a turn towards uh, asceticism. So the uh, the early Gnostics are quite pagan in their life, but the, what happens is as Gnosticism tries to coexist within the Christian Church, it starts to adapt itself to some to Christian ideas, to say, um, but and to in a way want to project itself as a sort of more spir- extra spiritual form of Christianity. And the the uh, the term Gnostic, Gnostic uh, uh, refers to knowledge. I mean, if you think of how we spell knowledge, K-N-O-W, uh, it's not a it's not a coincidence that Greek it's G-N-O-S. Uh, it's, there's still there's a common root there. Yeah, Gnostics, this sounds an awful lot like Hinduism. Uh-huh. Spirit good, matter bad. Uh-huh. Um, the transcendental meditation to break out of the body. Yes. To be loose to the passions. Yeah. That's what a critic, a friend of mine who's a critic of orthodoxy, especially of asceticism, uh-huh. says that, you know, he's read the literature and he just doesn't understand how the terms are used. Where he says the goal of the orthodox monk is to become passionless. Yeah. He says that's the same as the Hindu. I said, no, it's totally opposite. That's right. I said the Hindu does seek to obliterate any passions at all, any desires, to mm-hmm. totally escape it. I said, for the monk, is to totally control his desires. That's right. Or he's not controlled by them. That is exactly. And and um, this this um, let's say struggle with with uh, Gnosticism, particularly ascetic Gnosticism, will go up into the period of the uh, flowering of monasticism, and that will be. Uh, that's why the kind of there's a great book uh, by uh, Epiphanius of Cyprus written in the 4th century on uh, on heresies. And he spends a lot of time on the Gnostic heresies, and he draws on Irenaeus a lot for this. But the reason, why is he so interested? Because he was a monk before he became a bishop, and there were Gnostic monks um, alongside of... There were, so there was Gnosticism competing with Christian monasticism. And yes, uh, in a way, Gnosticism can portray itself as a type of asceticism, a type of, uh, in some types of type of monasticism. But it is not, um, as you say, the same thing. In some ways, it's, it's the opposite because it's it's a rejection of the material world as evil, therefore of marriage as evil, uh, eating meat is evil because meat is, is bad. But the, um, the Christian world is saying, well, no, this is all created by God, so it's all good, but because of the fall... We are faced with the temptation to pervert the good things of God, so we therefore struggle against this uh, tendency in ourselves by depriving ourselves of these good things. And that's, of course, a completely different thing because we're, um, you know, Christian church affirms marriage at the same time as we are honoring those who refrain from marriage in order to impose more discipline. We we uh, think it's good to eat uh, to eat all different things that God provides, meat as well. But we accept, um, in fact, we sort of encourage asceticism of, of voluntarily depriving ourselves of that for the purpose of putting the mater- the body into subjection to the soul, not because we think the the body is bad and is is going to be destroyed, but because we think that the body is good created by God and needs to be sanctified, um, taken, protected uh, from kind of say, repenting of sin in order to to make it uh, a vehicle for divine grace. And that's, uh, there was someone, I don't know who it is, maybe somebody will tell me someday, uh, who said that the, the goal of man is to create relics. Uh, I, I don't know, it's a strange saying, but, but actually... Uh, 
you know, in one sense, you can see what he means that uh, that by sanctify, living a sanctified life, we we sanctify and bring into communion with God even our our bodies and the and the world around us. So the um, the saints, through their obedience to God, made their bodies holy things that were able to perform miracles to heal people, as well as the clothing sometimes and objects that they had. Uh, the same thing. Okay, <clears throat> let's just um, go through a bit of his life. And um, he, as I said, he he grew up here in Smyrna, uh, probably in the 130s. <clears throat> this is uh, actually the time which Justin was converting to a Christianity in Ephesus, probably at the same time as, as uh, Irenaeus was growing up with Polycarp. This is also... A time there's uh, there are Gnostics about, and uh, Ignatius had to battle with them. Polycarp's battling with them, and there was a um, person from up here in northern Asia Minor named uh, Marcion, who was the son of a bishop who had been living a kind of uh, celibate life. He falls into sin. His father excommunicates him, and he goes to Rome to try to be reinstated in the church, but while he's there, he becomes a Gnostic and ends up coming back and forming a uh, his own Gnostic church in the in the Asia Minor. Part of what he does is he is actually much more successful than the early, the early Gnostics were essentially private teachers. And you, Gnostic, or oh, the word, the reason it's the word knowledge is that you are saved by secret knowledge. So each Gnostic teacher has this secret knowledge that he's going to give you to escape from the uh, angels and so that you can be reunited to the one, to the spiritual world. Um, Marcion, because as the, growing up in the Christian church, he keeps the order of the church. In some ways, uh, what he does is create a sect from the church, but he modifies it in order to fit into Gnosticism. So he continues to use the New Testament, but he removes, okay, gets rid of the Old Testament. And uh, ultimately what he he creates a canon, which is uh, Paul and Luke. He takes out the Nativity and Luke, and he takes out references to the Old Testament throughout both books, both groups of writings. And, uh, And this is his uh, corpus of the New Testament. He also institutes uh, celibacy as required in his church, and he um, sort of teaches, you know, basically the similar things to the Gnostics that the Old Testament is the, you know, religion of the Jews who are the worshippers of this uh, demiurge, and and that following Christ means rejecting that, and so on. He's quite successful, and and his this church, his spread church spreads all over the East and um, continues to go for hundreds of years until it's later uh, absorbed by the uh, the Manichees who come out in the three the third century and uh, eventually they merge and so so Marcion uh, most of the Gnostics you know the individual teachers they come they they teach they have disciples and they're gone and and the, the thing that uh, each Gnostic had his own doctrines, you know, so that uh, they didn't create so much of a, of a, a kind of a, a church the way Marcion did. The um, at some point, Irenaeus uh, kind of grows up and goes west and appears to stop in Rome sometime in the 150s. At the same time that Polycarp, uh, Polycarp goes to visit the Pope in Rome in 155. And it seems that uh, that uh, Irenaeus is there because he describes the events. Meanwhile, uh, Justin has gone from Ephesus over to Rome where he's established his school. And Justin, from his life, we find out that, um, kind of his martyrdom, that all of his students are mostly Christian 
people from Asia Minor. This, for this area of Asia Minor was very involved in trade, and so the people from here, including, and this was heavily a heavily Christian area, lived in, in Rome, and they lived up in, uh, in Lyon, because this is a, on the river, it was a trading depot for France. <clears throat> so, this, uh, the early Christian spread in the West seems to be connected with the movement of uh, Greek-speaking Christians from particularly Asia Minor, as other, well, other places, over into Rome and into France. Of course, the Church of Rome was already there. And um, Justin kind of has, he's a philosopher, and like most philosophers, he you know has a little private school too, where he gathers people. But he um, he's a Christian philosopher, so he's he has a Christian Christian students, and there are a lot of similarities. And Irenaeus seems, in many ways, somewhat dependent on Justin. So there's been the, the uh, theory that perhaps he studied at his, at Justin's school in Rome for some time. In in 156, um, Polycarp had gone back to Smyrna, and while he's there, there is a persecution against the Christians, and he's hunted down out in a he's, he's taken out to a farm by his followers to hide him, but somehow they find out and come out and arrest him. And he's killed in 156. And this is the occasion for Justin's first apology. It's a curious thing that the uh, the manuscript of the Polycarp's martyrdom that survives is is a copy of the manuscript owned by Irenaeus. And this would possibly be uh, whether that he, you know, received a copy of this in Rome or Lyon, wherever he was, or perhaps you might think that perhaps he didn't leave Smyrna till after. But um, but later on, the uh, when um, there's another persecution in 250, uh, the priest there who was martyred, Pontius or something, his copy of the martyrdom of Polycarp is taken from. Irenaeus's copy because they had lost it in Smyrna, and they and he gets it essentially back from Irenaeus, but uh, not personally, but but it's uh, recovered by through copies. In um, in Rome, Justin continues to he you know he writes his apology protesting the death of Polycarp. This is also the time Marcion has visited Rome and, and come back. Another uh, major Gnostic figure, there's actually a couple, but the, the one, let's say, most important one for now will be someone named Valentinus, who is the founder of the Valentinians, uh, not connected with St. Valentine, by the way, Valentinus. And he's a Gnostic from Egypt and who develops a... Um, very strong school of Gnosticism in the West uh, that actually spreads back in East and West and uh, is found in some of his documents from him are found in the uh, Nag Hammadi library, uh, Gnostic library that was discovered in Egypt not that long ago. But the um, Valentinus' uh, works are mostly lost, but what we gather from him is a kind of very elaborate mythology of how you know this uh, the the fall of the angels into producing the material world. So he's a kind of classic Gnostic in that sense. But however, it seems his disciple among his disciples is the, another priest in Rome who comes from Smyrna. It was actually a colleague of Irenaeus. Was a someone who was under Polycarp had moved to Rome, become a priest. And he becomes uh, very interested in Valentinus' teaching. His name is uh, Florinus. And this is during the... Valentinus comes to Rome about 140, and during the 150s he's, his, uh, he's thriving, he's very popular. One of the things that um, distinguishes the Gnostics of this group is that they did not set themselves up in opposition to the church, but Valentinus and his disciple Florinus and um, Ptolemy, almost all of them, uh, somehow 
tried to keep themselves within the church, tried to even have positions of, you know, be a priest or, and so on, and they, and they um, would, would do their teaching secretly. And the reason they were able to do this is they, the Gnostics had uh, an idea that when, when the uh, spirit, spirit became trapped in the material world, that it didn't become trapped equally. So there are three kinds of people for Gnostics. There are the spiritual people. And uh, I had this same system explained to me by a guy from Kansas who belonged to a modern Gnostic group, not, not knowing he was explaining uh, the early Gnosticism. But the, uh, and then they had um, what are called natural people and then uh, fleshly people. And their idea was that most people in the world actually don't have any spirit in them at all. They're just, they're just material beings. So they have no possibility of salvation. They don't, they don't have any spiritual existence because they're just, they were just made out of matter and they essentially like have no souls. Then the natural people, well, they do have souls, but they, they're not really going to be able to get to the highest level, but they are, if they, uh, work hard, live virtuous lives, do everything they're supposed to do, you know, somehow God will save them. Then there's the spiritual people, and those are the ones that have, you know, really the this trapped spirit. And they will be able to understand the secret teachings of the Gnostics, and through them be able to be reunited with the, um, you know, reunited with the spiritual world. So, what comes as the Gnostics try to blend into the church, what they, their thought is that, well, most of the people in the church are not spiritual people, so they're not really able to understand the secret teachings that uh, I have to impart to you. You know, so you're you're just going to have to make do with the stuff that's taught in church. So it's all you kind of live on the level of symbolical. So they they said so. Therefore, for those people, you know, that's what, that's the best they can do. So that's what we're going to, you know, that's fine. But to the ones who are spiritual, you know, we will. We'll give them the true uh, meaning of everything. And so because they believe this way, a person who is a priest, who is a, was, a, was a Gnostic, could say, all right, well, uh, you know, to the, to the church at large, I'm not going to talk about all this because they're not capable of understanding it. So they would essentially go along with the church's teaching and say, well, that's, that's good for you know, regular people. But then among themselves, they would say, but we understand the higher things. And so they would have the Gnostic doctrines sort of as a secret doctrine among the elite, you know. And because of this, they were able for some time uh, to exist within within the, and, and work within the church. And this is a problem that Irenaeus uh, tries to address in, in his life. The... Um, Irenaeus's kind of public life begins with the persecution of, well, as I say, that while Irenaeus is there, this, this is all going on. Valentinus is there, Florinus, they're all, they're all, this Gnosticism is pervading the church in Rome. He, at some point, goes up to Lyon, becomes a priest. And uh, the bishop in Lyon was connected with, apparently connected with St. Polycarp of Smyrna, also, he was somebody, he's like 90 years old, and he had been, I guess, sent up there as a missionary. The majority of the church are people from uh, Asia Minor, and we have, though, some Latin converts. While he's there, a uh, this is when the problem of the Montanists comes up, and the Montanists, are being re- who are heretics from Asia Minor, are being received in Rome. The church in Lyon sends a letter down to Rome to complain about that, and they send Irenaeus down. Now, at the time when they do this, this is just when a persecution is breaking out in Lyon, and uh, in 177. And this persecution is described in great detail in the uh, Eusebius' church history. And if you uh, happen to, if you don't have a copy of Eusebius, this is the main source for the church before Constantine. 
And if you do, the, the description of it, that le- the letter that they, um, they write a letter back to Asia Minor, to where, the, where they came from, describing what happened to them. And it's a wonderful uh, thing to read, so I just highly recommend it to any of you. But what happens there is the people start um, kind of turning against the Christians, I guess maybe as the, as the local people were starting to be converted, there's animosity to them and they're being kind of, um, you know, uh, tormented in public and forbidden, forbidden from coming into public places. But at some point the uh, governor starts to arrest them and he, they begin to torture the pagan slaves living in the houses of the Christians. And when they do this, they get the pagan slaves to say that the Christians are um, involved in cannibalism and in uh, immorality, incest, I guess. Now, many people have said, well, this is because, you know, misunderstanding of the body of eating the body and blood of Christ and uh, that all Christians are brothers and sisters. Justin, who's... Uh, of course, he, I'm sorry, Justin was martyred in 165, so he's already deceased, but in his writings against the Gnostics, because remember, the early Gnostics were very involved in immorality, he says that the Gnostics um, do all these things, that actually, and if you read Epiphanius, yeah, there's, there, there, they do all that, that. And, but the Gnostics also don't believe in being martyred, so when the Romans come and say, well, you have to worship the emperor or else we're going to kill you, so, oh, sure, well, we'll worship the emperor, you know, we're not Christians. Um, so the Gnostics commit lots of crimes and perhaps uh, get people, just, you know, riled up that there's things going on, but they always make sure that they don't get murdered. And so the church, um, Justin believed that the Christians would be blamed for the actions of the Gnostics. But in any case, uh, in Lyon, the, uh, the servants, you know, under torture, agree to say that, that yes, the Christians are doing this. So they round up all the Christians and begin torturing them to try to convert them. Because the purpose of uh, the Roman authorities was not really um, just to punish Christians, but to make, to make people stop being Christians. And this is where the Christians, in response, didn't their their response to a persecution was not well? Gee, how can we all get out of here without being arrested or captured? But they saw the enemy not as the pagan government, but as the devil, and that the the purpose of the devil in the persecution was to make the Christians um, give up their faith, which of course was the purpose of the Roman government was to torture them. Until the, because generally uh, in the Roman world torture worked. If you wanted people to do something and they weren't doing it, well, you just torture them, and eventually they'll agree to do what you tell them. But in, the Christians um, were different in that they they felt that their goal was not to survive, but to persist in the faith till death. So therefore, this was they saw this as a spiritual struggle against the devil, and they persisted. So they uh, were tortured to death, and then the, the Roman authorities, it's interesting, they, they are very concerned that the Christians will take the bodies and preserve them um, as relics. And so they go to great lengths to destroy the bodies and dump them out into the river. So the uh, churches practice now of venerating the relics of martyrs. We see that it already uh, was known about by the Roman authorities in 177. Anyway, when um, the persecution is over, Irenaeus comes back from Rome, and he is made the bishop. And from this time, this is when he begins writing his books. And some of what he wrote we don't have anymore except in quotations, but we have two major books by him. The one that everybody's known about for a long time is called, uh, it's now known as Against Heresies. It's originally titled Against Knowledge Falsely So-Called, Against the False knowledge of the Gnostics. And this is the um, volume one. If you look back behind you, that see that kind of big books with the blue on them? That's the post-Nicene Fathers, right? There's a set in red called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. This is volume one of that set. 
So this has the Apostolic Fathers, Justin, or Writings of Justin, and the Writings of Irenaeus. It's uh, got to be one of the best deals on uh, Church Fathers you can get. The, um, there was another major work of his that was lost for a long time, but was uh, in modern times discovered in Armenian and was translated, and it's available in the Ancient Christian Writers series. Um, it's called The Proof of the Apostolic Preaching. The, uh, before I mention, I'll tell you what they are. This, this other book, if you, if you are a person who doesn't want to spend a lot of money, you can get these things, Early Christian Fathers, collected by Cyril Richardson, online, very cheap. They're uh, used, they've been around a long time. It's the Apostolic Fathers and then selections from the Apologists, Justin and Irenaeus. And uh, so you get all, you get to read it all for very little, but you, you know, you don't get full text. But that, in some ways that is easier because it's geared at the kind of most interesting stuff. The um, proof of the Apostolic preaching is essentially a history of salvation. It's written Particularly, uh, Irenaeus's writings are, he, kind of his whole life has been in a churches which were uh, being attacked by Gnostics. What happens when he gets up in, um, he's Bishop of Gaul, is that the Gnostics from Rome start trying to missionize the area where he's a bishop. And he writes his books as responses to that. And so it's, it's a history of salvation showing uh, the unity of the Old Testament, the, the creation, the divine creation, as well, in a sense, what we would consider normal Christianity, you know, it's a, uh, I mean, that's, people often, you know, think that being Orthodox means, you know, you only believe in some very esoteric, mystical, something totally different than Christianity that everybody else knows about. But in fact, uh, being Orthodox means you believe in the Christianity that comes from the apostles, and so that's, I mean, there's some differences. We're not Baptists, right, you know, or Catholics, but uh, but you know when you read him, what he's what he's saying is that uh, yes, the you know the God of the Old Testament is the Father of Christ. That the creation of the world is good, and this is Adam and Eve. You know, were created man and woman by God, and he's um, he's defending Christianity from this Gnostic misinterpretation. That's and it's a very nice. Uh, you know, it's it's the Christian doctrine explained uh, as you know in the uh, probably written about 180. So that's one of the earliest expositions of the Christian faith that exists. The his uh, his big book that that's been around for a long time. This one against the uh, Gnostics. It's uh, five books long. This is a little more uh, difficult to read. What he did was he went out and collected all the information about Gnostics that he possibly could get. And he, so he writes a kind of uh, exposition of all these different Gnostic teachers and what they taught. And that's, you know, all very involved. It, but it, what's, one of the things that's good about it is that uh, today when, you know, not a lot of Gnostics writings survive, a lot of what we know about Gnosticism comes from Irenaeus. But then the second part is his refutation of Gnosticism and his arguments is to how we know that the that the church represents the the truth as opposed to the Gnostic teachers. Because the Gnostic teachers, okay, their argument is that the truth was entrusted to um, was kept secret from everyone and only entrusted to uh, maybe Mary Magdalene, who entrusted it to someone who entrusted it to me. You know that and if you become my disciple and I'll, you know, maybe I'll tell you. But the, um, but the, so the idea of the, of the Gnostics like Simon Magus was to have, to be the, the people who, only people who knew these secret truths. What Irenaeus, the reason why he's documenting these Gnostic teachings so, uh, in such detail is he wants to show that each Gnostic teacher is teaching something different. You see, that if there were some kind of secret truth, each Gnostic, you know, then only one of them could have it because they don't agree with each other. And so his point is that Gnosticism um, reflects, you know, in a sense, is the invention, to some extent, the invention of individuals. 
and then he's also uh, trying to show that the teachings don't, you know, in themselves are self-contradictory and don't make much sense, as well as not agreeing with Christian faith. In response, um, before I, well, let me tell you, I'll just say that um, at the end of his life, what, what was happening was the, uh, for some reason, the popes were not uh, clamping down on, you know, so people like Florinus, who were, was a, bit, a priest in Rome, continuing to try to um, push this stuff up into call. So Irenaeus has to write to the pope uh, to complain you know, what are you doing? <laughs> why don't you, you know, these are your priests, why don't you stop them? Because this stuff is not Christian. And he um, actually, you know, is, is trying to, it shows that in a way that the, uh, often people in the church are not aware of false teachings and that, you know, that sometimes, that he has to uh, make them aware and try to, to get the church to take action against heresies. So that didn't just happen kind of automatically. But I want to go through his um, his definition of kind of what, okay, how do we know that Valentinus is not kind of possessing the truth through his this kind of secret knowledge he has as opposed to the church? And he uses several arguments. The first is his um, is the canon of the church. The uh, he goes to great length because partly because Marcion has sort of redefined the canon to be only you know the things that don't talk about the, New, the Old Testament, and and other Gnostics we know uh, wrote false gospels and false apocryphals you know including their Gnostic ideas. So what what Irenaeus is, is careful to do is to try to uh, document which are the true apostolic writings. So uh, again, you know, we, we're the church of the church and tradition, you know. But but part of the tradition is that we we are we take the New Testament very seriously, and so Irenaeus and goes through and and tries to show which are the authentic New Testament writings. You know, how are these uh, the Gospels are connected to the apostles, like with the, the Gospel of Mark is connected to the um, memories of Saint Peter and why we accept these books. So that the true uh, canon is those books which are of apostolic origin and that are accepted uh, by everyone as apostolic and have been accepted all along. So these are, so the, the first thing is, what is the true New Testament versus all these other books? And so that is our first guarantee of preserving true Christian faith. The second is something which he call kind of is like apostolic succession, and but in the, in the Catholic Church, apostolic succession means that you got laid your hands ordained by someone, and often you find that you know, well, as long as you're ordained by this person, is ordained by that person, you know, going back, you know, then you're okay no matter what you're doing, you know. So I've you know had people tell me that they uh, you know well they have apostolic succession through Oh yeah, through all these various people that you know don't belong to any particular. You know, they're all different churches at different times, but somehow, as long as somebody keeps on laying hands on somebody, you know, they can keep this thing going. But it's it's unconnected with the church and it's unconnected with any particular faith. What what uh, Irenaeus is talking about is the apostolic succession of doctrine, and. He's talking about succession of bishops, but he's talking about that the, the key to that is that the, these uh, successors are teaching in public. The bishops, so their public teachings are consistent with what they're given. So that if you look at these uh, at Christian churches in each place, you'll see that there's a succession of bishops who each are teaching publicly the same things as the people before them. And that this goes back, and in his own case, he refers back, you know, to, well, so I knew Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. So there is this, you know, so what I'm telling you is coming from Polycarp, who's getting it from John, this is linked, we're linking this directly to the apostles. 
And then he goes through the succession at Rome and says, see, this goes right back to uh, St. Peter. This, And that all over the world, the churches all have bishops that go back to the apostles. But the focus, the focus is not just on the people, but on what they publicly teach. And this is, again, you know, sometimes uh, people put a lot of emphasis on um, let's say uh, esoteric teachings, you know. That, but, but for uh, Saint Irenaeus, the the true faith of the Church is that public public teaching of the gospel, and that that's what a con- continuity, and that's what makes the Church the Church. It's not it's not uh, the secret teachings of a certain Gnostic teacher or something. So it's 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 that. Um, sameness, <laughs> and and the fact that it's accessible to everyone, as opposed to the, the Gnostic only to certain people. The um, other side of this, okay, so in, in our in our creed we talk about the, the apostolic church, we also talk about the Catholic church, and Catholic uh, doesn't mean just Roman Catholic, but it means uh, universal. And so just Irenaeus says, well, anywhere you go, you're going to find the church teaching the same thing. The Christian church is always um, has the same doctrines because at this time it's all you know one church. There's no uh, we didn't have Catholic and Protestant at the time, so it's all the same. Whereas when you look at the Gnostics, you see that all their te- each one of them has different teachings, and so this unanimity of the church and uh, well, the interesting thing is, I mean, because the church spread out from the time of uh, Pentecost, you know, so that they started spreading, and you know, if as some people like to say, oh well, maybe all these doctrines develop later. Well, if they all develop later, then you know, we'd find different things in different parts of the world. But the fact that we find the same doctrines, essentially same liturgy, you know, same New Testament, I mean, that means where did this all come from? It, you know, that it's not something that was invented later. This was something that all came from the origin of the Christian church. Um, and so that's a, you know, a good argument for the dating of the New Testament. It's a good argument for the you know, origins of our services in the synagogue and for the origins of the Christian faith in Christ and his apostles. Because otherwise, each part of the world would have a different, a different faith. He refers to something else that we, um, we don't... Uh, Often think about it, but he calls it. We, maybe at first doesn't doesn't make any sense, but he said, "Well, we have also the rule of faith, and the rule of faith." Well, you say, "Well, you know, what's the rule of faith?" We never heard of that. Well, in our church, we have something called the creed, and that we, it's the Nicene Creed, usually called. And uh, some people imagine, well, that you know means that in 325, some bishops got together and decided to make up a creed, and that's why. A lot of Protestants will say, well, we don't have any creeds, you know, we don't want to listen to a bunch of bishops uh, living, you know, that whatever they decide to make up. But in Nicaea, the reason it's called the Nicene Creed is because they are, we had a sort of standardized form and the introduction of a word homoousios, which means of the same essence, in order to combat Arianism. But the creed that they used was the baptismal creed from Caesarea that had been, and the... Um, Baptismal creeds were found all over the place in various forms, but the baptismal creed was something that was of apostolic origin. And this is what um, Irenaeus is referring to when he says that we, one way that we know we have the true faith is that we, our faith is in, com- is in conformity with the rule of faith given to us by the apostles. And he, um, he kind of refers to this rule of faith um, diligently following the old tra- the old tradition, we believe in one God, the Maker of heaven and earth and all that is in them, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, on account of His abundant love for His creation, submitted to be born of a virgin, Himself by Himself uniting man to God, and having suffered under Pontius Pilate and written, risen, and having been received up into splendor to come again in glory as the Savior of those who are saved and the Judge of those who are judged. Um, not word for word, but it's pretty close. Uh, 
so what the church had was uh, a creed that they saw as coming from apostolic times. I mean, in the Irenaeus, as see, is uh, in his youth, not that very far away from apostolic times. And which, it's again, the uh, creeds were used all over the church of the Roman world. It's not something that just developed in Lyon or in, uh, you know, in Rome or something like that. But was another aspect of this kind of universal inheritance. And so when we think about the creed in our own uh, church, again, it's not just something that uh, <coughs> our bishops came up with, but it's something that it's part, like the New Testament, it's part of this universal inheritance that of what Christianity is, of, the, of this kind of public declaration, declaration of a common faith. Um, that's, we're, we're about done, so I, because it's time to go. Well, just, and I mentioned that he died in 202. And, uh, and so I, I, I find him interesting not only as a, as a person who combated the Gnostics and kind of established Christianity, you know, what defined what Christianity is in contradiction to Gnosticism. But if you look at that today, it kind of gives us a definition of what the Christian church is. It's that which contains... Um, an apostolic faith, both in the adherence to the New Testament and the creed and to the continuous Christian doctrine, to the unity of Christian faith, uh, so in time and in space. And uh, in this way, it's it's in contrast to some of uh, what we see in in kind of visions of Christianity in modern times where we can have all different groups uh, with, you know, kind of developing their own doctrines independently um, that to a certain extent, only not that those people are necessarily going into Gnosticism, but they are kind of pulling themselves away from the kind of central characteristics of what Christianity is. So, yes? Uh, I'll mention uh, uh, there are two other things that I recall that, that, he, uh, that he seems to emphasize that the true church has, mm-hmm. the Gnostics don't. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them is the spiritual gift. Okay. You know, he, he talks about the Holy Spirit and these, you know, these special gifts that, mm-hmm. that you know, like m- miracles and, and uh, prophecy and things like that that the true church has. And the other thing is that the Christians, the true Christians, were willing to die for their faith. They were bold in the face of martyrdom. Mm-hmm. As he mentions with the Gnostics, you know, yeah. they, they, whether they have any martyrs or not, you know, they may be able to remain one or two or something like that. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially it's, it's a very stark contrast between the, the boldness and, and fearlessness of the Christians that the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit gives them, mm-hmm. and these these false people who basically, you know, are just cowards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a, well, that's a, that's a, can adds holy to our one. We believe in one holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Yes. I, it's thick, so you, you need to go. <laughs> Sorry, good voice. I assume we're having vespers. So. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.